as we'd stayed ahead of time, we'd like to take a look at the book of Esther, do a study of this book. It's a very important book for different reasons. As we look into this book, we're going to see uh, a lot of lessons that can be learned. We're going to see uh, people in this book that were ungodly and people that are godly. We're going to see the providence of God, uh, how that God in His providence can rule and overrule. And that's in fact, that's probably the major theme of this book. Uh, we will see, were it not for God ruling and overruling, that the Jewish people would have perished, and all the promises that God had made concerning a seed coming to this world through Abraham, and all the nations of the earth being blessed as a result of that would not have happened. But as always, whatever God promises, He will see to it is carried out. And so several times in Jewish history, we find were it not for God, the Jewish people would have perished and Christ could not have come according as God had stated. And we find this to be uh, very clearly taught to us here in the book of Esther. The book of Esther is one of two books in the Bible in which the name of God is not found. And yet God himself is found on every page in every chapter. Uh, Esther is one of two books in the Bible uh, that go by the name of a woman. We have Esther, of course, and we have, <clears throat> excuse me, we have Ruth. This setting in the book of Esther uh, is around 500 um, B.C., or around about that. Dates vary depending on who you read after and study and the historians, etc., but it's pretty close to 500 B.C. Uh, we find that currently... Uh, the Medes and Persians are ruling in the world. And uh, if you remember, even from last Sunday, I mentioned that vision that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel gave the proper interpretation to. Uh, there was a, a great image, and the head was of gold, which represented Nebuchadnezzar and the, the Babylonians. And the next was the breast, uh, breast and arms were silver, which represented the Medes and the Persians. So that's who we're dealing with right now, the, the Persian Empire. And it's a great empire. And the ruler at this time, as we look in, in chapter 1, verse 1, is a man that goes by the name of Ahasuerus. And it says this, Ahasuerus reigned from India, even to Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces. Now that's a large area, trust me. That's a, a large empire, geographically speaking, from one end to the other. Uh, this monarch that we're going to take a look at here in chapter 1 was pretty typical of monarchs in the uh, biblical days and Old Testament periods of time. In fact, they were, they're consistently uh, the same, so to speak. They reveled in their power and in their authority, and they were lifted up in pride, and their word uh, was unquestioned just by giving a certain word Someone could be killed, or someone could be freed, or someone could be put in captivity, in prison. Somebody could be put into an office. Somebody could be taken out of an office. Just like in uh, Pharaoh's day, when he had the butler and the baker put into prison. There was no due process. There was no trial. There was no, uh, you know, uh, coming forth and explaining their positions. He just didn't like them one day, and he had them both put into the prison. Then when he wanted to later on, he bought them both out. And of course, knowing the story there, we find that the butler was restored and the baker was beheaded. 
And so that's the kind of power that these men had. When the United States set up their government, it was supposed to be set up where that could not be the case. It's supposed to be a balance of power. So we have three branches, and they're supposed to balance each other out so that one does not have this type of power. Of course, I've noticed in the last uh, several presidents we've had, they like to use their pen with executive power and uh, executive orders. And if they go beyond what the Constitution will uphold, well, they can be sued at the time they're sued and taken to the courts and wind up the Supreme Court. Whatever they decreed by executive power has already done its damage, especially if it wasn't a good thing. But nevertheless, we do have some security in all of that, some balance of power. So here's a king, a monarch. As we look at his life, you'll see he was very ungodly in many different ways. The kingdom is divided into 127 provinces. Now in this first chapter, we'll see three feasts, very lavish feasts. In fact, there's going to be nine feasts brought to our attention in the book of Esther. Uh, the first feast lasts six months, <laughs> incredible length of time. Uh, then there's going, the second feast will last seven days, and the third like one day, but the three together, and the first one is going to last six months. In this first feast, you're going to find where the king brings together all leaders of these 127 provinces, the military leaders, those in positions of authority, etc. While it doesn't state it, it is felt like, and it makes common sense, that all, now, all the leaders would not have come at one time. That's probably why it took six months. He'd bring a few this, this week, and they'd go back, and a few the next week, and they'd go back. Otherwise, you would leave all 127 provinces without any leadership for six months, and that certainly would have weakened the kingdom down. So I'm sure it was on a rotating basis. But nevertheless, it took six months. Very lavish, very extravagant. Now, we, we find... These men like this were used to making these feasts. Remember in Genesis chapter 40, Pharaoh makes a feast. And it's his birthday. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating your birthday. Most all of us do that, you know, whether it's very private or maybe a, a family and family and friends, etc. Uh, we have birthday celebrations. So he's celebrating his birthday. But we find on his birthday is when he decides that the baker is going to be beheaded. So that didn't turn out too well for the baker. He didn't have too good of a birthday celebration. Then we find in the 14th chapter of Matthew where Herod had a birthday celebration and Herodias, his daughter, come before him and danced before him and he stated he'd be willing to give her whatever she asked and her mother told her to ask for the head of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist was beheaded at this birthday celebration. Uh, didn't turn too well, uh, out too well for John the Baptist, did it? So usually these feasts were very carnal um, to satisfy the carnal nature. And they would look for just any excuse, you know, to have some of these feasts. So we see that of Pharaoh and Herod. And then in the fifth chapter in the book of Daniel, you got a, a ruler, um, a name of Belshazzar. And he had a, a great feast. And he gathered all, oh, a thousand of his uh, men and people in authority there and uh, his, his family and friends, etc. And they drank excessively. You find that something very common. They like to drink excessively and eat excessively at these places. They spared no expense. And the case of Belshazzar there in, in uh, <clears throat> the fifth chapter of Daniel, 
we find that they used the golden cups and everything that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple when the Babylonians came and took uh, the Jews captive. And they were drinking and everything and giving praise to the God of gold, the God of silver, the God of brass, the God of iron, the God of wood, the God of clay. They, all these represented different gods and they were praising these gods. God was not pleased with that. And I may say a little more about that a little bit later on. So this is a very common thing. So for six months, this feast goes on. That's 180 days. This, this feast is carried out. And then after that was over, he gave a feast for the common people. And uh, primarily the men, I believe. And that lasted seven days. And in the third feast, uh, his queen, Vashti, she has a feast for a day. So we have three feasts here brought to our attention here in the first chapter. But notice in chapter 1, and on verse, in verse 10, it says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, uh, his, he's got seven counselors here, give the names, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus, the king, to bring Phastai, the queen, before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. This is something he would never have done had he not been drinking. This is not something he would have done if his heart had not been merry. Now, when I begin to study in the Bible the use of wine, I find where there is a proper use and an improper use. Uh, in biblical days, there were basically three beverages. There was water, there was milk, and there was wine. Now, improper use of it, you find that early on in the ninth chapter of Genesis. After the flood, we find Noah, uh, as great a man as Noah was. And I spoke concerning him uh, part, you know, partly in the last week's discourse. Uh, what did Noah do after the flood? He planted a vineyard and he got drunk. Now, the Bible does not condemn uh, you know, uh, drinking wine, but it does condemn drunkenness. It condemns drunkenness. And he got drunk. And a very ungodly thing took place with one of his sons. And won't go into details about that. In the 19th chapter of Genesis, you're going to find a man by the name of Lot, Abraham's nephew. After Lot has been delivered from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, you're going to find where his two daughters that he has at that time come up with a plan to preserve seed of their father. And they get him drunk. And one night, one lays with him. The next night, another lays with him, and both of them carry a child by their father, who they got drunk to preserve seed through him. And we see, of course, this gross immorality taking place. And what helped bring it about? Well, drunkenness is what did it. Now, in the 31st chapter of Proverbs, in fact, we're going to see a number of verses in Proverbs playing out in the book of Esther. In the 31st chapter, uh, in the beginning here of Proverbs, I think about verses 4 and 5, here's what the Solomon wrote. He says, It's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine and strong drink. It says, For it will cause them to forget the law and pervert judgment concerning the afflicted. What does alcohol do? It helps you pervert judgment. It causes you to forget things that you know you need to remember. 
It's been said that alcohol in the body is like sand in a gas tank. Now, who in their right mind puts sand in a gas tank, right? You don't do anything like that. It, you know, cause great damage. And that's what you do when you put it into your body. Uh, alcohol is a narcotic. It, people don't drink alcohol for food and they don't drink it for nourishment. Now, here are some of the improper uses of this and what the Bible would have to say about it. Uh, we find his heart was merry. In other words, he was certainly not thinking clearly when he sent to have his wife, his queen, brought before the people to show them her beauty. She, uh, evidently, she was a very beautiful woman. Uh, she was blessed uh, of nature to be very attractive, and he wanted everybody to see her. But she refused to do so. And we give her credit for that. Not a lot, lot said about her, but we give her credit for refusing to do so. So his heart was merry. He was intoxicated, in other words, when he gives this command. Now, some of the proper uses, getting back on that, uh, we can see. We find in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake, and then often infirmities. It's used here as a medicine. We notice the emphasis is on little, by the way. He didn't say, go and drink a lot of wine. He says, go and drink a little wine uh, for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. That's a proper use of it. We use it in the communion. That's a proper use of it, is it not? It represents the sinless nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, represents his sinless life, his perfect life. That's a proper use of it. It's proper to use it in certain social aspects. The Lord Jesus Christ turned water into wine at a wedding. Uh, they came to him and said they have no wine. It represented a problem, a very serious problem, evidently, an embarrassing problem for those who were hosting this at the wedding. And so the Lord had them to take and put water in some containers. And when they poured the water out, wine came out. Water went in, but wine came out. It's the first miracle we find recorded the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 2. We find in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3 qualifications of a minister. One of his qualifications is he's not to be given to much wine. Then we have qualifications of a deacon. And one of the qualifications of a deacon is he's not to be given to wine. That means he's not to be under control of wine. Uh, wine is not to control him. Didn't say it was improper or wrong or a sin to drink some wine. But too much wine can cause a problem. In the book of um, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but rather be filled with the Spirit of God. It's a lot better to be filled with the Spirit of God than it is with alcohol, isn't it? <laughs> But he compares the two because the Spirit of God, the gospel in Jesus Christ, uh, will do for you in the soul and spirit some things that actually wine will do. You know, um, it will cause you to act a little differently than the rest of the world. Uh, it'll stimulate you to do the, the right things, so to speak. So we see some proper uses, some improper uses of this. Um, but here we find there was so much drinking going on, led by the king himself, that his heart was merry. And he says, go and get the queen and bring her out here so that everybody can see. Now, he gave this feast for several reasons. But before we get into that one again, we find he wanted to display his power, wanted to display his authority. 
uh, this man is lifted up with pride. That's one of the problems that people of this kind of authority oftentimes have is pride. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 18, we find a familiar verse here concerning that when the writer says that, um, you know, pride goeth before a fall, uh, forth destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Notice, pride goes first, it's followed by a fall. A haughty spirit goes first, it's followed by destruction. And this king's going to learn that lesson right here. This king's going to learn it. In the book of Proverbs 6 and 16, Solomon says there are six things that the Lord hates and the seventh is an abomination. The first on that list of six things is a proud look. A proud look. Uh, you know, it's, it, especially in times past, thankfully I don't hear this near as much. People have a hard time sometimes breaking habits. But it's a habit to uh, tell somebody about something, especially a member of your own family, say, I'm just really proud of him. Well, I understand what they're saying. I've said that myself in years past, but I've tried my best to break myself of using that word as much as I possibly can. I've replaced it with thankful. I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for what he's done. I'm thankful for his accomplishment. I'm thankful he's used his gift. He's used his talent, whatever it may be. That's a lot better word than the word pride. Remember now, pride goes before a fall, and pride, and we'll take a look at something else here that the king uh, it caused the king to trip up, and that was anger. All right, pride leads to anger, and anger leads to pride. There's going to be a lot more in this book about pride later on concerning a man by the name of Haman. But right now, we're just looking at the king. Here's a king that's very proud. He gives this extravagant uh, feast here. Uh, he, he goes on for six months. He displays all of his power, all of his authority, all of his riches and everything else before all the people. And then he has a seven-day feast to follow that. And then the queen has a one-day feast for all the ladies, so to speak. And so now he's merry with wine. He's intoxicated. He's not going to use good judgment. He's going to call for his wife. She's not going to come. She refuses. And uh, therefore, the king was very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Anger. Over in the book of um, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, Paul says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your raft. Now, what happens when you get angry if it's not controlled, if it's not checked, if it's not uh, uh, dealt with properly? You're going to find, you're going to say something, you're going to do something. Uh, that is sin. And so instead of be angry and sin not, you can wind up practicing sinful anger. That's different than righteous indignation. The Bible says the Lord Jesus Christ was angry. He went to the temple, took a scourge of small cords, and he drove them all out of the temple because the people in the temple had turned his father's house into a house of merchandise. And he quotes from the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, where he says, My house shall be called the house of prayer. But it was anything but prayer at this particular time. Uh, they'd used the father's house, his father's house, a place of worship uh, for merchandise, to turn a profit, to buy and to sell, etc., etc. So we see the Lord using righteous indignation. But anger is very, uh, you know, is an important subject actually in the Bible. Over in the book of Proverbs, 
in chapter 16, in verse 32, he says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. This king is a powerful ruler. He ruled a lot of things, but he couldn't rule himself. That was his problem. He couldn't rule himself. Couldn't rule his anger. Uh, in the book of Proverbs, a little bit further over, in chapter uh, 25, uh, in verse 28, Solomon says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that's broken down and without walls. Now what kind of safety would a city have without walls? That was the whole purpose of walls around a city in biblical days. It was for protection. It was for safety. And you had watchmen on those walls. You had bulwarks on those walls. You had towers on those walls. But a man who cannot control his own spirits, just like that city whose walls are broken down. There's no protection. There's no safety. Uh, you just open yourself up, becoming vulnerable. That's what a person does when they don't control their spirit, when anger gets involved. Here we see the king's pride. We see the king intoxicated. We see that king extremely angry when his queen refuses to do what he's commanded her to do. Now, she has committed a triple offense. She's committed a triple offense. First of all, she's usurped authority over the man. Number two, as a wife, she's usurped authority over her husband. And number three, as the queen, she's defied the law and commandment of her king. And that was obviously a no-no. She's, you know, committed a triple offense in all of this. Now, all of this is very important because all this is going to lead up to how Esther becomes queen one day. Okay, this is laying the foundation of this book. And we're going to see how God operates how God is in total control in these matters. This king, who's guilty of pride, being intoxicated, anger, he says to his wise men, and he's got seven of them. Now they're called wise men only from the standpoint that these men were supposed to give the king advice from time to time about various things. It could be personal advice, it could be governmental advice, it could be military advice. It's like our president has a cabinet. When he takes office, he fills the cabinet with men who are supposed to have expertise in certain areas and they can advise him. They have their meetings and they're supposed to discuss it. And they give him what they feel like he ought to do, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, it's finally up to him whether they accept it or not. That's what these wise men are. But of course, you're going to notice in this man's life, he never looks to God. He never prays to God. He seeks advice from these wise men. This is his cabinet right here. And it goes totally contrary to what David tells us in Psalms 1. In Psalms 1, he says, Blessed is the man that uh, standeth not with the ungodly, that setteth with sinners, that standeth with sinners, and, and he sets with the scornful. But his delight is in the law of God, and in it doth he, de- uh, doth he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. In other words, the word of God is the counsel that we need. Now, and I like to think we have 66 counselors in the word of God, 66 books in God's, that make up the Bible. That's 66 books of counsel. And the Bible tells us in Proverbs again that there is safety in the multitude of counselors. When you are considering something, it's always beneficial and wise to seek out godly people that you think are wise people 
that you've seen display wisdom in their life, you may have some expertise in the field that you're in, and talk to them about it. You know what just really uh, irritates me? Uh, every once in a while, something really does irritate me. You may think it does, but it does. Every once in a while, like at least once a day, there's something that irritates me. And what irritates me is somebody perhaps having marital problems, and they'll go and try to get some advice from somebody who's been married three or four times. Now, how much wisdom's in that? You're having problems, you're having marital problems, and you're going to go talk to somebody who's been divorced several times and married several times to get their counsel and their advice. Why don't you go to somebody who's been married for 50 years and never been divorced? Ask them how they did it. Ask them for counsel. Ask them for advice. It's like a drunk going to another drunk to find out how to get sober. It doesn't make any sense, does it? None whatsoever. But yet, I see things just like that all the time. But David here says, Blessed man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth the way of sinners, nor seateth in the seat of the scornful. The man who does not do that is a blessed man. So where is he going to go to get counsel? From the man of God? From the Word of God? From people, again, who are successful? from people who achieve things in a godly manner, in a godly way. That's where you go get your counsel. This man goes to the ungodly men around him, and I can assure you, these are ungodly men. You know what counsel they give? They tell you, we got a serious problem right here. The queen has refused to obey you, and if you don't do something about it, then the wives of all the men are going to follow her lead. <laughs> They're going to cause their husband's problems at home. Notice in verse 17, For the deed of the queen shall come abroad in all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their, in the, their eyes, when it shall be reported uh, that the king commanded the queen, and she would not come forth, etc., etc. Well, look in verse 21, And the saying pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of uh, Mekon, seems to be the leader of these seven. You'll find that this king here, and many of the kings in uh, Old Testament days, they acted on impulse. And they just did what somebody asked them to do without thinking it out. He hears what the plan is. He thinks, well, I, okay, we'll do that. And so a decree was sent out to all the land, you know, <clears throat> concerning this matter. And the queen is going to be deposed. She's going to be taken down. Notice this uh, counsel versus the counsel I find recorded by Paul in Ephesians 5.25. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. You nourish her and cherish her as Christ did the church. Does that sound like a little different counsel and advice than what this man here gave to the king? Uh, you know... I've been in the position of trying to give counsel to married people on numerous times in my ministry. I have never said things like this. Well, the best thing you can do is let her know who is boss. You be sure to let her know who's wearing the pants in the family. <laughs> I've never told anybody that. <laughs> That's not the way it works. That's not the way it is. Have you ever heard that, especially in years past? Well, your problem is you're not the man of the house. You need to let her know who the man in the house is. You need to let her know who's wearing the pants in the family. Oh, that's great advice right there. Boy, you'd like to stick a dynamite's what you're doing there. 
No, this <laughs> counsel here <laughs> of one of his wise men is just about like that. That's basically what he's saying right here. So the king does it. And she's going to be deposed. Now, uh, if, if you're familiar, uh, most people are not with some of the history during the world during this period of time. Uh, one of the reasons that he gathered these, all these men together for six months in the minds of historians is the fact that he was uh, selling them on the idea of an invasion. He wanted to go and invade uh, the Grecians who had defeated his father. He wanted to go in for revenge and he wanted to set up or he'd have a one world empire. But you can find historically in 480 AD, uh, BC rather, in 479 BC, where both his navy and his army was totally destroyed, and he comes back home humiliated. About three to four years pass before this is going to be resolved. Now I want to say this. All the rulers in the world, the world's ever known, have failed to recognize a very important lesson. And a very important truth. No matter how great they were in the eyes of men, no matter how powerful they were in the world, there was one that was always more powerful. There was always one who was more sovereign. There was always one who had greater authority. In the Old Testament, he's referred to as the highest of the high. He's referred to as the most high. And we look at Several of these, and if you go back and study them, you'll see where this lesson was learned. You go back to the days of Pharaoh, when Moses and Aaron went into him and told him, asked for permission for the children of Israel to, to lead the land of Egypt. You know what he said there in early goings? He says, who is the Lord? That's his question. Who is the Lord? Then I should obey him and let these people go. I know not this Lord. Well, the day would come when he would know who that Lord is. When he, his all his mighty horses and his chariots and everything, pursuing the nation of Israel after they had gave, been given their freedom and let go, they all drowned in the Red Sea. He learned the lesson. King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylons learned the lesson. The Assyrian king learned the lesson. After he had uh, defeated many nations and defeated Israel to the north, he came to defeat Judah. And his thing, his, the message that his uh, officers gave to the Jewish people was this. What nation has resisted me? What nation has been victorious over me? I've conquered them all, and I will conquer you. You know what the Lord did? He answered the, the prayer of Hezekiah. He told Hezekiah he'd put a hook in that king's nose and turn him around and lead him back to the very land he came from, figuratively speaking. And that's exactly what he did. And his own sons assassinated him. He learned that lesson. There's a man named Herod over here in Acts chapter 12 that gave a great oration and the people were so impressed with his words, so impressed with his speech, so impressed with his manner and his, his uh, um, you know, uh, his charisma, that they started saying he was some god. You know what God did? He sent an angel down here who slew him. There's always been one who is higher than the high, the highest, and of course that's Almighty God. When you go into chapter 2, you're going to find where the king... He comes back, he remembers his queen and his so-called counselors going to give him a solution to the problem. They're going to tell him that they're to go throughout the, you know, the kingdom and to bring all the fair maidens, all the fair maidens, all virgins there, and from them he's going to be able to select one 
who will take the place of the queen that he deposed. He likes that idea. So this is the second time he's asked for counsel, the second time he follows their counsel. And so this is exactly what takes place. I don't know how many of them they got. But of them that were gathered together, there was a Jewish woman by the name of Esther. A Jewish woman name of Esther. And we find Esther and Mordecai coming to our attention here for the first time in Esther chapter 2 in verse 5. Now in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who being carried away from Jerusalem with a captivity, which being carried away with the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, and that's a, that is her Hebrew name, and it means myrtle tree. That is Esther, his uncle's daughter. For she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took her for his own daughter. In other words, this is Mordecai's cousin. But her mother and daddy are dead, and he's going to adopt her into his family as his daughter. She's got two names. She's got a Hebrew name, which means myrtle tree. She's got a, a, a Persian name, which means star. And something real interesting, the myrtle tree puts off flowers, and those flowers are in the form and shape of a star. She's one of the women who are gathered together and brought, put into the charge of a certain individual. And this is going to take one year to take place. For one year, they're given a special diet. For one year, six months of that one year, they're treated royally, of course. And they're, you know, treated with all types of perfumes, etc., etc., and then the other six months of the year, they're treated very royally in another manner, in another way. But I want you to notice something in this chapter. Over here in verse 15. Now when the turn of Esther, what they would do, they would take turns and these women would come into the king. And the king would spend time with them, a day with them, and then they'd go back out into another place. Finally become Esther's turn. And when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abigail, uh, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go into the king, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlains, the keeper of the women, appointed, and Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. That expression, she obtained favor. What kind of favor? When you read above here, you're going to find where she was given special privileges by the person in charge. She had her own spot, her own place, separated from the others. God in his providence is taking care of her. She's treated in a very special manner, special way. It reminds me of Daniel in Daniel chapter 1 where he obtained favor in the sight of the prince of the eunuchs. It reminds me of Joseph when he was in the household of Potiphar. And God uh, was with him and brought him into favor with Potiphar. And then later on with the keeper of the prison, etc., God is able to providentially do those kind of things. In the book of Proverbs, again, chapter 21, verse 1, it says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turned the wheels of his eyes as the rivers of water. And God is going to influence this man, man's mind, influence this man's heart. And he's going to make a choice. He's going to make a selection. And guess who he's going to choose? He's going to choose Esther. What's the chances of that? Without the intervention of God, what's the chances of that? There's going to be the need of a Jewish woman in a place of influence with the king to later on preserve his people. What's the, what's the chances of that happening? 
I marvel when I think about Joseph, how he was first despised and hated uh, of his brothers, and he's put into a pit. And from that pit, later on, he's going to want the second command in the land of Egypt. It goes beyond my little mind, what my little mind can uh, wrap around to think, how in the world could that possibly come to pass? You know, well, it did come to pass because God intervened and God overruled and God brought him into favor of the right people at the right time. He winds up second under Pharaoh. How in the world is a Jewish woman going to wind up to be a Persian queen? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. He chooses her. Then he got a great feast. This is feast number four of the nine. He comes, has another feast. Notice in verse 18, Then the king made a great feast to all of his princes and servants, even Esther's feast. He made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. Now he's really appealing to the people. He wants her to be the people's queen. And when the virgins were gathered together a second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Now you might read that and not think a thing about it. That's an important statement. And Mordecai sat in the king's gate. It might seem like it's out of place, but it's not. In biblical days, the gate was a place where official business took place. It's apparent that Mordecai has some type of governmental position in the Persian Empire at this particular time. He's sitting there in the gate. That's where official transactions and businesses took place, where you gathered witnesses for certain transactions. You read more in detail about that if you go to the book of Ruth and read chapter 4. Esther not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai out like as when she was brought up with him. Now, as we bring our remarks to a conclusion tonight, there's something very interesting about this. How in the world could Esther and Mordecai keep it a secret as long as they did that they were Jews? If they were keeping God's laws like they should have, then they could not have kept it a secret. The only way they could have kept it a secret is that they did not keep God's laws in captivity like Daniel did. Daniel was very faithful. Hebrew children were very faithful in keeping God's laws. That was the basis where it says that Daniel would not defile himself the king's wine and king's meat. And how God blessed for him to be able to satisfy that, satisfy God's law. I don't understand all of this in a sense. But I know this, God's going to overrule all of that for the preservation of his people. It's like Mordecai and Esther have become two people occupying positions in which they do not know they're in Jews in the king's government here, a queen in Mordecai, some official position, just like Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea did in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Nicodemus came to Christ by night in John chapter 3. Joseph Arimathea, Arimathea, excuse me, Arimathea. He was a very rich man, a very wealthy man. God's going to use these two men. And he says he was a secret disciple. God will use these two men, Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea. He's going to use them to take his son down off the cross, probably prepare his body, and put in the tomb of Joseph Arimathea in his new tomb. God's going to use two people here. He's going to use a man. He's going to use a woman. He's going to use Mordecai. He's going to use Esther. And notice how chapter 1 closes. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate... Two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthon and Teresh, of those which kept the door were wroth 
and sought to lay hands on the king. In other words, they're about to plot his assassination, his death. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. She's going to tell the king. Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king. And when inquisition was made of this matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. That's going to come into play big time a little bit later on in this book. When you're first reading this, you might not think much about it. But this is a key event right here. How did Mordecai find out about this? Because he sat in the gate. And where he sat in the gate, them not knowing he was a Jew, he overheard the plot, revealed the plot. The king's life is spared. He knows nothing about it. But it is recorded in the Chronicles. God saw to it, it is recorded in the Chronicles. You know that Mordecai at this time is neither recognized nor rewarded. He's neither recognized nor rewarded. And we should not do things to be recognized and rewarded. That's why the Lord said three times in Matthew chapter 6, when he told his disciples, he says, whenever you pray, you pray not like the Pharisees who stand on the streets and they appear to be very pious and self-righteous and religious and all of that. He says, let not your left hand know what your right hand doeth. He said, God who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. When you fast, you do the same thing. God who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. When you, <clears throat> when you tithe, let not your left hand know what your right hand doeth, but God who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Hebrews 6.10. And uh, I think I mentioned this not too long ago, but when Karen and I sent a thank you card for people, we always try to put Hebrews 6.10 on there. And I don't write out what it says. I trust that people getting it will read it. <laughs> I put Hebrews 6.10 there. Here's what it says. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love and that you've ministered to the saints and doth minister. While you may not receive human recognition and a human reward, you will receive the reward of God. He that seeth in secretly shall reward you openly. You receive the blessing. God sees everything. He misses nothing. He sees it all. He knows when you do things. You do it for the right reason. And so this chapter ends in a very important manner and way before it goes into chapter 3. But we see how Esther became queen in the Persian Empire tonight. The king has no idea in the world she's a Jew. He knows no, has no idea in the world what God is doing from heaven as he's ruling and overruling in his providence in this man's life. He doesn't even know God. He's ungodly. He's wicked. He's evil. He shows no mercy. And yet God is going to overrule his actions Proverbs 21, 1 again, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turned the wheels of his eyes as the rivers of water. And that verse gives me a lot of comfort today and a lot of encouragement today when I think about what's going on in the world. Right now, if you're paying attention, of course, you know on a world stage about Russia and Ukraine. You know, I, I hear that, but I just let it go. It's out of my hands, it's out of my control except I can pray that God will intervene in the minds and hearts of even the wicked and the evil to overcome it and overrule it and keep peace here in this world and certainly peace here in our country and in our nation. And when I think about that, I'll go on about my merry day 
doing whatever comes before me next. I cannot sit around worrying myself to death and wringing my hands in despair about things that I cannot control and things I cannot do when I got a God in heaven who says, I'll take care of it all. 